In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. I have been asked to announce by our esteemed verger, Ray, that there will be a tour of the church and its history for those who wish to assemble after the service and after the voluntary at the baptistry. You are welcome to do so and to join him for what is a very extensive and fine tour that I recommend. The Gospel reading today is a deeply curious one, even though it is a surprisingly common practice in the light of that to treat it as entirely straightforward. Yet how could it be when, as we shall see, it leads from the concept of the persistent, one might almost say, one is tempted to say professional widow, and the unjust judge through to the murder of an innocent man on a beach being run through with a sword, not to mention eureka moments, and the concept of election, the goodness of God, and divine justice, which is doing well for eight verses. But looking at the Gospel itself, there are, after all, at least three distinct sections. That opening. And he told them a parable to the effect that, a strange phrase, if ever there was one, that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Then in the middle, he said in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor regarded man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Vindicate me against my adversary. And then, suddenly, we get what appears to be not just one, but a sequence of non-secretors, which just don't quite seem to follow. First A, verse 6, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Well, remember that that was, because this widow bothers me, I will vindicate her. So why do we really want to attend to that? And then B, as though it followed from that, 7, verse 7, And will not God vindicate his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will vindicate them speedily. And finally, see, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, Will he find faith on earth? Not something I can dwell on too much today. Can we really, therefore, expect, then, to find one collective meaning from all that? Well, such trifling considerations have certainly not stopped many a commentator from precisely assuming that we can. Thus, it may be said, for example, this gospel lesson is simply looking at the challenge of upholding faith in difficult times, and offers reassurance to the followers of Christ that God hears our prayers and that however difficult our circumstances, we should remember that it was never part of Christ's message that discipleship would be easy, while it also reminds us that God will nonetheless vindicate faithful disciples in the end. All very consoling. Insofar as we do discern all this in the Gospel lesson, it is of course true, but we are actually doing so in this text on a rather thin basis of the first verse and perhaps a little portion of the last. So that looks as though it's based on disciples ought always to pray and not lose heart, and the observation towards the very end, the Lord will vindicate speedily his elect. In between, of course, the Gospel launches abruptly into a quite different subject, namely what is often called the parable of the persistent widow and unjust judge, where, 
to quote again, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor regarded man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, vindicate me against my adversary. And here, at once, we are presented with two figures rich with association. Thus, the original Jewish hearers of Christ would have recalled at once that Moses had charged judges to render fair and honest decisions, irrespective of the wealth or status of the petitioner before them, in Deuteronomy. While widows in the Bible are always freighted with meaning, always embodying the vulnerability of those on the fringe of society in both the Old and New Testaments. As we are reminded, and only last week in the story of Ruth and her mother, widows without, widows without ready means of support were presumed to be dependent on their grown children or on charity. Because of their vulnerability, the scriptures repeatedly demand particular protection for widows and orphans, as also for strangers and aliens, who are all seen as subject in this way to special divine solicitude. But there's also here an interesting line about the failings of the judge, who specifically said neither to fear God nor to respect man. And there, the word we often use for the original Greek word is often rendered in English with respect, though the original word has more to do in Greek with being without shame. But in noting that, we would do well to remember also that respect is itself potentially a problematic concept, even though it has come to increasing prominence in interfaith and ecumenical contexts, where it is often offered as a concept we can all share which can in turn, therefore, it is suggested, help us make the needed space for others who hold beliefs quite different from our own, and that is commendable. But the ancient world would remind us of just how dangerous the idea of respect, when combined with some sense of entitlement to respect from others, can become. Here we should remember the fate of Archimedes. He was the Greek mathematician, physicist, engineer, astronomer, inventor from the ancient city of Syracuse, who among myriad other things anticipated modern calculus, not to mention an approximation of pi, quite aside from leaping into the bath and having his eureka moment when he discovered the concept of displacement. But it's the manner of his end, as related by Plutarch in his lives, that is relevant to the concept of respect. For it was during the Second Punic War after the Romans had in fact laid siege to and taken Syracuse, that Archimedes was one day contemplating a mathematical diagram he had drawn in the sand, when a Roman soldier arrived and commanded him to come and meet the victorious General Marcellus. But Archimedes declined, saying that he had to finish working on the mathematical problem before him. This enraged the soldier, who accused him of failing to show, guess what? respect, and in consequence of this the soldier ran him through with his sword, thus ending the life of the greatest mathematician of the ancient world. So much then, we may say, for the concept of respect when added to a sense of entitlement, but exactly that mix is implied by the flaw in the character of the judge in the parable, for he clearly feels he is entitled to respect from others but does not like to bother giving it to others himself. And it is further made clear 
that there is no basis upon which to expect justice from such a judge who has the hubris neither to fear God nor respect people. And here again, it's important to recognize the burden of meaning behind that phrase, fear of God. For fearing of God was seen as deeply positive, indeed necessary, as an attribute to our well-being in both the Old and New Testaments. Hence, when Jesus tells us that this judge does not fear God, we again know that the judge is not to be trusted and is unreliable. Despite this, and despite her low social standing, by contrast, as a widow, the seemingly fearless woman in the parable persists in making her case to be heard, with the judge who ends up saying in a very interesting phrase, I will defend her or else she will wear me out by her continual coming. But why is that, why is it that her persistence matters so much? Is it just offering general insight that persistence can pay off, or is there more going on here? Is the point that even bad people, like the judge, can sometimes do what is right, albeit for the wrong reasons, in this case because she was being a bother to the point that it might damage his reputation as a judge in the public mind? Or is it that there is some kind of allegory here, whereby the judge is in some manner a figure standing in for God, listening to our petitions, even if only in the negative sense of offering a sharp contrast with our understanding of God as a loving God, as such one who always does what is just. And then what about that verse 7? Won't God avenge or vindicate his chosen ones, eclecton, the elect? That's a very interesting phrase, because now we have a whole new concept introduced, namely that of those chosen by God, or to put it in a different language, the concept, as I say, of the elect. This leads to an additional line of thought, namely, we should expect a loving God to vindicate his chosen ones, namely the elect with particular celerity. And here, once again, it's important to remember that the idea of the chosen, the elect, is found throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. God chose Abraham and Abraham's descendants, bringing them into a covenant relationship that made Israel to be known as God's chosen people. The New Testament continues this understanding, but with the church as the new people of God, the new elect. But if God is going to respond particularly to his chosen people or the elect, why is the persistence still important in beseeching his aid? Which is exactly what the persistent widow demonstrates. After all, it would make no sense to suppose that we could somehow shame God like that judge into acting. Where would justice fit with that? If God is wholly good and therefore just, he would surely do the right and just thing because it is just and right not because we do the beseeching with a particular intensity. Indeed, to suggest that God waits for us to reach a particular level and intensity of imprecation before he acts might arguably be thought not far removed from a form of high-minded torture, akin to someone who waited for the screams of a person in distress to reach a particular volume before stepping in to help, 
while adding insult to the injury by saying that they were doing so for their own good. But then again, there's another way to look at what is happening, where it is not actually about our engaging, let alone changing God, but rather that what is happening in such a case of persistent prayer is that the unceasing prayer peels away the weaknesses and deficiencies within us and our lives until our will is realigned and conformed to God's redemptive purposes. But now there is a risk of equivocation when saying God answers, or in the language of the passage vindicates, in response to intensely persistent prayer. If it is we who are changed by prayer, in what sense is God acting or responding or even involved? And furthermore, how does being chosen by God or being elect affect the whole situation and the prayers? Certainly it's true that in the face of travail and difficulties, we often hear people say, the only thing we can do is to pray. But it's in such a way as generates a certain sinking feeling, as if prayer were a weak substitute for the absence of more meaningful remedies. Consider if you went for a battery of medical tests, and then you went to see the medical doctor, and he came along to you and said, really, now is the time you should just pray. Would we think that a very reassuring diagnosis? If he'd said, we can do this, that, and the other, and you should also pray, we probably would have had a more favorable response. But then, what about the idea that prayer is changing God? How are we engaging, in some sense, with God and his power? That is a way of looking at prayer as a meaningful remedy, since it engages with God, who is, of course, omnipotent, and with God all things are possible. But changing God, well, on a classical understanding where God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived, the idea of change in God does not make sense, as it would imply, to put it rather naively, that God's perfection was not fully actual, or, if you like, that he might be getting better or worse, which really doesn't make sense. Well, it could be argued that aside from anthropomorphic language, by virtue of being outside time, God can timelessly know all the prayers that are ever to be made, and that accordingly in some manner, difficult to work out, I will say, God therefore timelessly takes into account all the prayers that are made throughout time, which in turn entails that they can be thought of as part of the mix, if you like, of what causes the course of events, at least from our perspective. But there is a danger that this could, that reference to perspective, make answered prayer seem like what philosophers sometimes call a Cambridge change, where the change is not a change in the way things actually are, that's an Oxford change, rather it's an instance of changes that only appear to be changes, but are actually consequent upon a change in perspective. It's hardly a perfect analogy, but I'm tempted to illustrate something of this by asking if it's really a change, if I decide to call a note at 462, 466.2, frequency a B-flat instead of an A-sharp. Is that a change? Even if I will say that for some of us, when attempting to sing, assuming we've not forsaken the bothersome bounds of tonality entirely, deference we may be sure to Schoenberg, our B-flats are generally more convincing than our A-sharps. But I must not digress. Though I can only leave you to imagine, of course, incidentally, what a Durham change will be. But that's for another time. Happily, however, 
Greek scholars do have some interesting things to say about this text at this point. For the phrase in verse 7, rendered today as, will he, God, delay long over them, they being the elect, could be rendered more literally as, and he is patient or long-suffering with them. Now that rendering of the text would seem consistent with the idea that God is patient with the elect as they work their way through to accepting their need to be in alignment with God's will and thus accept the faith to which they are called. This perspective is consistent, one might say, with free will. It is to be noted as a God who is outside time can have a very strong kind of omniscience in the sense of knowing who will accept salvation without that of itself determining it. At least one could argue that. It's a debate. Hence, there is a sense in which one could well portray God in human terms as patient with those who seek to follow the path of salvation in Christ in the veil of soul-making that is this earthly life. So what are we then to make of the gospel we've heard as a whole? Well, it may be that we have to say that this text is not, in fact, one whole, but rather one parable in Luke about a widow's quest for justice from a reluctant judge, while the further content is an allegory of prayer, perseverance, and vindication of the elect. Viewed in this way, we can recognize that the component sections may not, in fact, connect as directly as we might first tend to assume, simply because we heard them as one thing. And to see this is, as we have seen, both helpful and indeed fruitful in some respects. Yet here I am reminded of the intersection of the three themes that came up in the sermon of Father David about Ruth, namely of creation, providence, and salvation, to which in today's gospel we are invited to add the concept of justice as well, the divine justice. How these interact is a fascinating set of issues. The Roman Catholic theologian Edward Schielewechs has dealt extensively on the connection between creation and salvation, and thus between the creator God and the Deus Salutaris. Thus he wrote that on the one hand, I quote, creation is an act of God which sets us absolutely in our finite, non-divine, human peculiarity destined for true humanity. While on the other hand, creation expresses itself in selfless love as our God creates humankind of his free will for salvation. But in the same action, he himself wants to be the deepest meaning, the greatest salvation of human life, just as sovereignly free. Which is to say, salvation is accomplished in the middle of the historically composed and contingent world. While another Catholic, Cardinal Caspar has observed further that salvation in the Christian meaning is the ultimate fulfillment of being human through the taking in of the person into God's life, whereby the creature receives a participation in the everlasting divine fullness of life, all of which is accomplished through the unfolding through history of God's love, which made possible salvation for all who believe in Christ despite the falling away from God into sin that was the price we have paid for the free will God granted us. But if, as I implied earlier, 
our understanding of God entails the absolute unity of God through lack, as the theologians would say, of composition, which is to say his simplicity, we have to suppose in turn that his justice requires exactly the same thing his love requires, the absolute destruction of sin. It requires that sinners repent of any wrong that they have done to others and that they be reconciled one to another. In the book of Acts, we thus find the apostle Peter exhorting a crowd, saying, Repent ye therefore and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Anything less than that would represent a defeat not only of God's love, but of his justice as well. And that does indeed take us right back to the widow and her persistence in bringing the unjust judge to do the right. <clears throat> For in doing so, she was living out her vocation in faithfulness to God by seeking to bring the errant judge also to do in the end what God wills, which is to say to do justice and to do right. In doing so, we see through her an affirmative answer to the rhetorical question today's gospel posed. Will not God vindicate his elect who cry to him day and night? And yes, indeed, is the answer she secured. Yes, he will. As we must all pray, we will allow him to do for us. Amen.